TED Audio Collective. This interview features environmentalist and futurist Stuart Brand and TED curator Chris Anderson, recorded live at TED 2017. Support comes from Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial, when the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Okay, Stuart, um, in the 60s, you, you found, I think it was 68, was it? You, you founded this magazine. Bravo, it's Hola. the original one. That's hard to find. That's the, right, issue one, right? Mm-hmm. Why did that make so much impact? Counterculture was the main event that I was part of at the time. And it was made up of hippies and new left. That was sort of my contemporaries, the people I was just slightly older than. And my mode is to look at where the flow, the interesting flow is, and then look the other direction. Uh, Partly I was trained to do that as an army officer, but partly it's just a cheap heuristic to find originality is don't look where everybody else is looking. Look the opposite way. So the deal with the counterculture is the hippies were very romantic, kind of against technology, except very good LSD from Sandoz. And... The new left was against technology because they thought it was a power device. Uh, computers were do not spindle, fold, or mutilate, you know, fight that. And so the whole of the catalog was kind of a counter-counter culture hmm. thing, in the sense that I bought Buckminster Fuller's idea that tools are of the essence. Scientists and engineers basically define the world in interesting ways. If all the politicians disappeared one week, it would be a nuisance. Hmm. But if all the scientists and engineers disappeared one week, it would be way more than a nuisance. So oh, we still believe on, that, I think. <laughs> so focus on that. And then the new left was talking about power to the people. And then people like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak cut that and just said, power to people. Tools that actually work. And so... Where Fuller was saying, don't try to change human nature. People have been trying for a long time, and it does not even bend. You can change tools very easily. So the efficient thing to do if you want to make the world better is not try to make people behave differently, like the new left was, but just give them tools that go in the right direction. That was the whole Earth catalog. And Stuart, this, this actual image of, this is one of the first images, of the first time people had seen Earth from outer space. Mm-hmm. That had an impact too. It was a kind of a chance that in the spring of 66, thanks to an LSD experience on a rooftop in San Francisco, I got thinking about it again, something that Fuller talked about, is that a lot of people assume that the Earth is flat and kind of infinite in terms of its resources. But once you really grasp that it's a sphere and then that there's only so much of it, 
then you start husbanding your resources and thinking about it as a finite system. Spaceship Earth was his metaphor, and I wanted that to be the case. But on LSD, I was getting higher and higher on my 100 micrograms <laughs> on the roof of San Francisco. Um, and noticed that the downtown buildings, which were right in front of me, were were not all parallel. They were sort of fanned out like this, and that's because they were on a curved surface. And if I were even higher, I would see that even more clearly. Higher than that, I'd see it more clearly still. Higher enough, and it would close, and you would get the circle of Earth from space. And I thought, you know, we've been in space for 10 years at that time. This is 66. And the cameras had never looked back; they'd always been looking out or looking at just parts of the Earth. So I said, "What? No, did a button? Why haven't we seen a photograph of the whole Earth yet?" And it went around, and NASA got it, and senators, secretaries got it, and various people in the Politburo got it, and it went around and on. And within two and a half years, about the time the whole Earth catalog came out, these images started to appear, and、mm. indeed they did transform everything. And it's my idea of hacking civilization. Is that you try to do something lazy and ingenious and just sort of trick the situation? So all these photographs that you see, and in the March to Science last week, they were carrying these, you know, whole Earth banners and so on. I did that with no work. I sold those <laughs> buttons for 25 cents a piece. So you know, the, tweaking the system is, I think, not only the most efficient way to make the system go in interesting ways. But in some ways, the safest way, because when you、right. try to horse the whole system around in a big way, you can get into big horse-around problems. But if you tweak it, it'll adjust to the tweak. So, I mean, since since then, among many other things, you've been regarded as a leading voice in the environmental movement. But you are also a counterculturalist, and and recently you've been taking on a lot of、um, well, you've been declaring what a lot of environmentalists almost believe are heresies. And I, I kind of want to explore a couple of those. I mean, tell me about this image here. Ah, that's a National Geographic image of what the what is called the Mammoth Step, the far north, the subarctic and arctic region, used to look like. In fact, the whole world used to look like that. What we find in South Africa and Serengeti now of lots of big animals was the case、uh, in this part of Canada, throughout the U.S., throughout Eurasia, throughout the world. This this was the norm, and It、can be again. So, in a sense, my long-term goal at this point is to not only bring back those animals in the grassland they made,、uh, which is part of could be a, a climate stabilization system over the long run, but even the mammoths there in the background are part of the story. And I think that's probably a 200-year goal, maybe in 100. By the end of the century, we should be able to dial down the extinction rate to sort of what it's been in the background. Bringing back this amount of bioabundance will take longer, but it's worth doing. Well, we'll come back to the mammoths, but but、um, I mean, explain how we should think of extinctions. There's obviously one of the huge concerns right now is that extinction is happening at a faster rate, you know, than ever in history. That that's the that's the meme that's out there. How should we think of it? The story that's out there is that we're in the middle of the sixth extinction, or maybe at the beginning of the sixth extinction, because we're in the de-extinction business and the preventing extinction business with revive and restore. Start looking at you know what's actually going on with the extinction, and it turns out it's a very confused set of data out there, which gets oversimplified into the narrative of we're 
we're becoming here are five mass extinctions that are indicated by the yellow triangles, and we're now uh, the next uh, the last one there on the far right was the meteor that struck 66 million years ago and did it in the dinosaurs. And the story is, we're the next meteor. Well, here's the deal. I went up researching this for a paper I wrote that. A mass extinction is when 75% of all the species in the world go extinct. Well, there's on the order of five and a half million species, of which we've identified one and a half million. Another 14,000 are being identified every year.、There's、a lot of biology going on out there. Since 1500, about 500 species have gone extinct. And you'll see the term "mass extinction" kind of used in strange ways. So there was about a year and a half ago a front-page story by Carl Zimmer in the New York Times:、uh, "Mass extinction in the oceans." Broad studies show. And then you read into the article, and it mentions that since 1500,、uh, 15 species, one in five, have gone extinct in the oceans. And oh, by the way, none in the last 50 years. You read further into the story, and it's saying the horrifying thing that's going on is that the fisheries. Are so overhunting, overfishing the wild fishes that it is taking down the fish population in the oceans, like by 38 percent. That's the serious thing. None of those species are probably going to go extinct. So you've just put that headline writer put a panic button on the top of the story. It's clickbait kind of stuff, but it's basically saying, "Oh my God, start panicking! We're going to lose all the species in the oceans."、Hmm. Nothing like that. Is in prospect, and in fact, what then I started to look into a little more details. The red list shows about 23,000 species that are considered threatened at one level or another, coming from the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the IUCN. And Nature magazine had a piece kind of surveying loss of wildlife, and it said, if all of those 23,000 went extinct in the next century or so, and that rate of extinction carried on for More centuries and millennia, then we might be at the beginning of a sixth extinction.、Huh. So the exaggeration is way out of hand. But environmentalists exaggerate. That's a problem. I mean, they, they probably feel like a,、um, a moral responsibility too, because they care so much about the thing that they are looking at. And unless you bang the drum for it, maybe no one listens. Every time somebody says moral this or moral that, moral hazard. Uh, precautionary principle. These are terms that are used to basically say no to things. <laughs> so the problem isn't so much fish extinction, animal extinction. It's, it's fish flourishing, animal flourishing that we're、right. it, we're crowding them to some extent. Yeah, and I think that the we are crowding, and there is losses going on.、Uh, the major losses are caused by agriculture, and so anything that improves agriculture and basically makes it、uh, more condensed, more highly productive. Including GMOs, please. Including if you want to do it, vertical farms in town, including inside farms. All the things that have been learned about how to grow pot、uh, in basements is now being applied to growing vegetables inside containers. That's great. That's all good stuff. Because land sparing is the main thing we can do for nature. People moving to cities is good. Making agriculture less of a destruction on the landscape is good. And there are people talking about. Bringing back species, rewilding. Well, first of all, rewilding species. I mean, what's the story with these guys? Oh,、uh, <laughs> wolves. Europe, connecting to the previous point, we're now at probably peak farmland. 
And by the way, in terms of population, we are already at peak children being alive. Henceforth, there'll be fewer and fewer children.、Uh, we are in la- the last doubling of human population, and it will you know, get to nine, maybe nine and a half billion, and then start not just leveling off, but probably going down. Likewise, farmland has now peaked, and one of the ways that plays out in Europe is there's a lot of abandoned farmland now, which immediately forests. They don't do wildlife corridors in Europe. They don't need to because so many of these farms are connected that they've made reforested wildlife corridors. That the wolves are coming back in this case to Spain.、Uh, they've gotten all the way to the Netherlands.、Uh, there's bears coming back. There's lynx coming back. There's a European jackal. I had no idea such a thing existed. They're coming back from Italy to the rest of Europe. And unlike here, these are all predators, which is kind of interesting. They are being welcomed by Europeans. They're, they're, they've been missed. And counterintuitively, when you bring back the predators, it actually increases rather than reduces the diversity of the underlying ecosystem. Often, yeah. Generally, predators and large animals, and large animals and large animals with sharp teeth and claws, are turning out to be、uh, highly important for a really rich ecosystem. Which maybe brings us to the, this rather more dramatic rewilding project that you've got yourself involved in. Why would someone want to bring back these terrifying woolly mammoths?、Hmm. Asian elephants <laughs> are the closest relative、uh, to the woolly mammoth, and they're about the same size, genetically very close. They diverged quite recently in, in evolutionary history. The Asian elephants are closer to woolly mammoths than they are to African elephants, but they're close enough to African elephants that they have successfully hybridized. So we're working with George Church at Harvard. Who's already moved、uh, the genes for four major traits from the now、uh, well-preserved and well-studied、uh, genome of the woolly mammoth, thanks to so-called ancient DNA analysis?、Uh, and in the lab, he has moved those genes into living Asian elephant cell lines,、uh, where they're taking up their proper place, thanks to CRISPR. I mean, you're not shooting the genes in like you did with genetic engineering. Now with CRISPR, you're editing, basically. One allele in replacing in place of another allele, so、uh, you're now getting basically Asian elephant、uh, germline cells that are effectively, in terms of the traits that you're going for to be comfortable in the Arctic, you're getting them in there. So we go through the process of getting that through a surrogate mother, Asian elephant mother.、Uh, you can get. A proxy, as it's being called by conservation biologists, of the woolly mammoth, that is effectively a hairy, curly-trunked、uh, Asian elephant that is perfectly comfortable in the subarctic. Now, it's the case. So immediately, people say, "Well, you know, how are you going to get them there?" And, and Asian elephants—they don't like snow, right? Well, it turns out they do like snow. There's some in an Ontario zoo that have made snowballs bigger than people. They just love taking you know, with a trunk. You can starve a little thing and roll it and make it bigger. And then、uh, and people say, "Yeah, but it's 22 months of gestation. It would be kind of, you know, this kind of cross-species cloning is tricky business anyway. Are you going to lose some of the surrogate Asian elephant mothers?" And the George Church says, "That's right. We'll do an artificial uterus and grow them that way." And people, yeah, yeah.、Uh, next century maybe. Except the news came out this week in Nature that there is now an artificial uterus in which they've grown a lamb. Uh, to four weeks—that's halfway through its gestation period. 
So the stuff is moving right along. But why, why should we want a world where... I mean, picture a world where there are thousands of these things thundering across Siberia. Is that a better world? Potentially. It's... I mean, the, the great... There's three groups basically working on the woolly mammoth seriously, the Revive and Restore. We're kind of in the middle. There's George Church and the group at Harvard that are doing the genetics in the lab. And then there's an amazing old scientist uh, named Zimov in, uh, who works in, in northern uh, Siberia, and his son Nikita, who's bought into the system. And they are... Sergey and Nikita Zimov have been 25 years creating what they call Pleistocene Park, which is a place in a really tough part of Siberia that is pure tundra. And the research that's been done shows that there's probably one one-hundredth of the animals on the landscape there that there used to be. Like that earlier image, we saw lots of animals. Now there's almost none. The tundra is mostly moss, and then there's the boreal forest, and that's the way it is, folks. There's just a few animals there. So they brought in a lot of grazing animals, muskox, uh, Yakutian horses, they're bringing in some bison, they're bringing in some more now, and put them in the density that they used to be, and grasslands are made by grazers. So these animals are there, Uh, grazing away, and they're doing a couple of things. First of all, they're turning the tundra, the moss, back into grassland. Grassland fixes carbon. Tundra, in a warming world, is thawing and releasing a lot of carbon dioxide and also methane. So already, you know, in their little 25 square miles, they're doing a climate stabilization thing. Part of that story, though, is the boreal forest is very absorbent to uh, sunlight. Uh, even in the winter when snow is on the ground. And the way the mammoth steppe, which used to wrap all the way around the North Pole, there's a lot of landmass around the North Pole, that was all this grassland. The mammoth steppe was uh, magnificent, probably one of the most, mag- most productive biomes in the world, the biggest biome in the world. The forest part of it, right now, Sergei Zimov and Nikita go out with this uh, old military tank they got for nothing, and they knock down the trees. And uh, that's a bore, and it's tiresome. And as Sergei says, and they make no dung, which, by the way, these big animals do, including mammoths. So mammoths become what conservation biologists call an umbrella species. It's an exciting animal, pandas in China or wherever, that the excitement that goes on of making life good for that animal is making a habitat, an ecosystem, which is good for a whole lot of creatures and plants, and is ideally gets to the point of being self-managing, where the conservation biologists can back off and say, all we got to do is keep out the destructive invasives, and this thing can just cook. So there's many other species that you're dreaming of, of de-extincting um, at some point. Um, but I think what... what I'd actually like to move on to is the, um, this, this idea you talked about, how, you know, mammoths might help green Siberia, in a sense. And, um, or at least, uh, to, yeah, not, I'm not talking about tropical rainforests, but, um, but this question of greening the planet, you've thought about a lot. And the, the traditional story mm-hmm. is that, you know, deforestation is... is is one of the most awful curses of yeah. modern times and that it's, it's a huge contributor to, chi- to climate change. Mm-hmm. And then you went and sent me this graph here, this map. What, uh, what is this map? Global greening. The thing to do with any narrative that you get from headlines and from short news stories is to look for what else is going on. 
uh, and look for what Mark Andreessen calls uh, narrative violation. So the narrative, and Al Gore is a you know, master of, of putting it out there, is that uh, there's this civilization-threatening climate change coming on very rapidly. We have to cease all uh, production, extra production of greenhouse gases, especially CO2, as soon as possible. Otherwise, we're uh, in deep, deep trouble. All of that is true, but it's not the whole story. And the whole story is more interesting than these fragmentary stories. Plants love CO2. What plants are made of is CO2 plus water via sunshine. And so in, in many greenhouses, industrial, industrialized greenhouses, they add CO2 because the plants turn that into plant matter. So the studies have been done with satellites and other things. And what you're seeing here is a graph of over the last 33 years or so, there's 14% more leaf action going on. There's that much more biomass. There's that much more what ecologists call primary production. There's that much more life happening thanks to climate change, thanks to all of our goddamn coal plants. And so, you go, whoa, what's going on here? Well, by the way, uh, crop production goes up with this. Uh, there is, this is a partial counter to the increase of CO2 because a lot, there's that much more plant that is sucking it down into plant matter. Some of that then decays and goes right back up, but some of it is going down into roots and going into the soil and staying there. So these counter things are part of what you need to bear in mind. And it, the deeper story is that thinking about and dealing with and engineering climate is a pretty complex process. It's like medicine. You know, you're always, again, tweaking around the system to see what makes an improvement and then do enough more of that to see it's still getting better. Oh, that's enough. Back off half a turn. But wouldn't some people say, look, not all green is created equal. You, possibly what we're doing is we're trading off the magnificence of the rainforest and all that diversity for, I don't know, green pond scum or grass or something like that. In this particular study turned out every form of plant is increasing. Now, what's interestingly left out of this study is what the hell is going on in the oceans. Primary production in the oceans, the biota of the oceans, mostly microbial, what they're up to is probably the most important thing. They're the ones that create the atmosphere that we're happily breathing, and they're not part of the study. This is one of the things that James Lovelock has been assisting. Is basically our knowledge of the oceans, especially of ocean life, is fundamentally vapor, in this sense. So we're in the process of finding out by uh, inadvertent, bad geoengineering of too much CO2 in the atmosphere, find out, well, what is the ocean doing with that? Well, the ocean, with the extra heat, is swelling up. That's most of where we're getting the sea level rise, and there's a lot more coming with more global warming. We're getting terrible harm to some of the coral reefs, like off of Australia. The Great Reef there is just you know, a lot of bleaching from overheating. And uh, this is why I and Danny Hillis, in our previous session, on the main stage was uh, saying, look, geoengineering is worth experimenting with enough to see that it works, to see if we can buy time on the warming aspect of all of this, tweak the system with small but usable research, and then see if we should do more than tweak. Okay, so, so this is what we're going to talk about for the last few minutes here, because it's such an important discussion. Um, first of all, I'm just going to show, like, this book was just published by uh, Yuval Harari, basically saying, you know, the next 
evolution of humans is to become as gods.、Mm-hmm. Um, I think he admitted. Now, you, you talked to him, and you've probably finished the book. I haven't finished it yet. Where does he come out on? <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a pretty s- a radical view. He、okay. he thinks that we will completely remake ourselves using data, using.、Um, Bioengineering、mm-hmm. um, to become completely new creatures that have kind of superpowers,、mm-hmm. um, and、um, and that there will be you know huge inequality and you know but we're about to write a, a very radical brand new chapter of history. That, that's what that's what he believes. Is he but, nervous about that? I forget. He's he is nervous about it, but、um, but I think he also likes provoking people. And、um, are you nervous about that? I'm nervous about that, but I mean I'm. You know, with so much at TED, I'm I'm excited and nervous, and、um, I, the optimist in me is trying hard to lean towards the "this is awesome and really exciting," while the sort of responsible part of me is saying, "But、uh, maybe we should be a little bit careful, you know, as to how we think of it." That's your secret sauce, isn't it, for the for TED? Is staying <laughs> nervous and excited. <laughs> so it's also the recipe for being a little bit schizophrenic. But <laughs>、um, but、um, but he didn't quote you. Uh, what I thought was an astonishing statement that you made back in oh we don't have that but back, right back in the original Whole Earth catalog, you ended it with、um, with this this powerful phrase that you know we are as gods and might as well get good at it, and then more recently you've you've upgraded that statement and I want I want you to talk about this philosophy. Well, one of the things I'm learning is that documentation、uh, is better than、uh, memory by far, and one of the things I've learned from somebody I, I actually.、Uh, I got on Twitter, changed my life. Ryan hasn't forgiven me yet,、um, and I took ownership of this phrase when somebody quoted it, and somebody else said, "Oh, oh by the way, that isn't what you originally wrote in that first 1968 Whole Earth Catalog. You wrote,、uh, 'We are as gods and might as well get used to it.' I've forgotten that entirely. <laughs> you know, the stories, these goddamn stories, the stories we tell ourselves become lies over time. So." You know, documentation helps cut through it. It did move on to we are as gods and might as well get good at it, and that was the Whole Earth Catalog. We, By we the are, time、right. I was doing a book called Whole Earth Discipline, an eco-pragmatist manifesto, and in light of climate change, and basically saying we are as gods and have to get good at it. We are as gods and have to get good at it. So, so, so talk about that because because you know the psychological reaction to so many people on on any, as soon as you talk about geoengineering. Is that the last thing they believe is that humans should be gods? Some of them for religious reasons, but most、um, just for humility reasons. That the systems are too complex. We should not be dabbling that way. Well, this is the the Greek narrative about hubris.、Uh, and once you start getting really sure of yourself, you wind up sleeping with your mother.、Um, <laughs> I, I I did not expect you would say that. <laughs> And you know that's the Oedipus story. The、uh, hubris is a really important cautionary tale to always have at hand. And I mean, one of the bylines I've kept for myself is every day I ask myself how many things I am dead wrong about. And I'm a scientist by training, and getting to work with scientists these days, which is pure joy. And science is organized skepticism. So you're always insisting that, you know, even when something looks pretty good, you maintain a full set of knowledge suspicions about whether it's as good as it looks. But what else is going on? So this "what else is going on" query that I think is 
how you get away from fake news, and it's not necessarily real news, but it's welcomely more complex news you're trying to take on. But, com- but coming back to the application of this, just for the environment, I mean, it's, it seems like the philosophy of this is that whether we like it or not, we are already dominating so many aspects of what happens on planets. So, and we're doing it unintentionally. So we 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 really should start doing it intentionally. What what would it look like to start getting good at being a god? What how should we start doing that? Are there small scale experiments or systems we can nudge and play with? How how on earth do we think about it? The mentor that sort of freed me from total allegiance to Buckminster Fuller was uh, Gregory Bateson. And Gregory Bateson was uh, epistemologist and anthropologist and biologist and psychologist and many other things, uh, and he was. He looked at how systems basically look at themselves, and that is, I think, part of how you want to always be looking at things. And what I like about David Keith's approach to geoengineering is you don't just haul off and do it. David Keith's approach, and this is what Danny Hillis was talking about earlier, is that you do it really, really incrementally. You do some stuff to tweak the system, see how it responds. That tells you something about the system. That's responding to the fact that people say, quite rightly, "What are we talking about here? We don't understand how the climate system works. You can't engineer a system you don't understand." And David says, "Well, that certainly applies to the human body, and yet medicine goes ahead, and we're kind of glad that it has." The way you engineer a system that is so large and complex that you can't completely understand it is you tweak it. And this is a kind of an anti-hubristic approach. This is, you know, try a little bit here, back the hell off if it's an issue, expand it if it seems to go okay. Meanwhile, have other paths going forward. This is the whole argument for diversity and dialogue and all these other things, and the things that we're hearing about earlier uh, with Sebastian. So the non-hubristic approach is looking for social license, which is a terminology that I think is a good one. Of including society enough in these interesting, problematic, deep issues that they get to have a pretty good idea and have people that they trust paying close attention to the sequence of experiments as it's going forward, the dialogue, the public dialogue as it's going forward, which is more public than ever, which is fantastic.、Hmm. And you feel your way, you just ooze your way along. And this is the muddle-through approach that has worked pretty well so far. And the reason that Sebastian and I are optimistic is we read people like Stephen Pinker, the better angels of our nature, and you know, so far so good. Now that can always change, but you can build a lot on that sense of things are capable of getting better. Figure out the tools that made that happen and apply those further. That's the story. Stuart, I think on that optimistic note, we're actually going to wrap up. I am in awe of how、um, you all, you always are willing to challenge yourself and other people, and I I, I feel like this this recipe for、um, never allowing yourself to be too certain is is so powerful. I've I want to learn it more for myself, and it's been very. Uh, insightful and, and inspiring, actually, listening to you today. Well, so Stuart Brand, thank you, thank, thank you, you so much, thank you. For more TED talks, go to TED.com. 
Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash TED Talks. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash TED Talks. Odoo, modern management made simple.